Welcome back to Reading for a Change, uh, the podcast where we discuss the books that are transforming our lives and shaping the world. Today, we're continuing a fascinating conversation discussion with Australian author and pastor Mark Sayers, author of Reappearing Church. And of course, we have back with us uh, the co-host, Hannah Anderson, author of All That's Good. Uh, Last time we left off with Mark talking about how it was actually easier to minister in an environment where there are fewer cultural Christians. And I'd like to finish uh, up talking about that phenomenon. Being here in the States, being in ministry, I think there feels to me like even the last three to five years, there is this just acceleration of um, separating cultural Christians and and in some degree people falling away who, especially among millennials, who they look at that practice of Christianity and they see right through it and, and they say, I don't need that in my life. Um, and they don't need that, but they're also not able or they're not um, receiving what they do need. And so I just want to mm. affirm what you're observing. And I've even noticed the acceleration as well. And, and I wonder, too, if we we have farther to fall, like like our statistically the, the mm. number at which Americans would claim Christianity or even evangelicalism is much higher than it might be in Europe or Australia. And so we have greater momentum in our fall. Yeah, <laughs> that makes mm. sense to bring physics into it. Yeah. And we've seen, I, I'm just thinking of the uh, Pew, big Pew study that came out a few years ago that showed that uh, there was a decline of 7% of Americans that claim to be Christians. And people that drilled down into that study basically concluded that what we're witnessing is the the first signs of the death of nominalism, right? Name only Christianity, because it used to be culturally advantageous to say you're a Christian, even if you really weren't, you could be like, oh yeah, my grandma was Baptist. Okay, I'm a Christian, right? Whereas that yes. cultural pressure to identify as a Christian is evaporating. Um, and so... I think that's probably good news, especially in light of what Mark is saying um, about doing ministry when the lines are a little clearer. You're not going to claim to be a Christian just because it's the popular thing to do. I mean, and and this is a really helpful way to frame some of the sort of public, um, let's call them deconversions. (laughs) And... um, now, for me, when I saw them, that's just been my experience. Like, that's half my mm-hmm. mates I was with in Christianity in Australia in the last 20 years. Right. Um, but, but, but what I – so, what, that didn't shock me at all. But I could see the shock, like, happening, particularly in the U.S. And yes. and and what, what, there's a really interesting uh, book called uh, – what's it called? Um, it's by a, a Turkish um, – I think it's a behavioral economist, uh, Timur Karan. Um, it's called Public Truths. No, pro- public lies, private truths. Hmm. And he just talks about this sociological phenomenon. He looked at communism where when, when communism fell in the Czech Republic, uh, I think New York Times went two weeks before communism fell and everyone's a communist. And they were talking to people, will communism ever fall? They're like never, even the dissidents, like it's never going to fall. <laughs> and then it falls and the New York Times go, what has happened? And they go back and the reporter's comment was, I couldn't find a communist. Mm. And he interviewed all these former communists, and they're like, "No, none of us believed it. It was just <laughs> culturally advantageous. Everyone in their stores had a had a had a sign saying Workers of the World Unite.'" And so, what he says is that often you'll have a publicly buttressed belief, 
And, you know, this also explains a lot of political correctness. We know that that what people say online is not what then they say in their private text chats with their with their friends. Right. And, um, so, I think what's happening is you're seeing a switch in America and what I found fascinating about some of the deconversion thing, and I don't want to talk about, I guess, the personal elements of those individuals, but was that there was a leveraging of it. There was like a, the, now for me to go forward in my career, yep. it's now more advantageous to go, I deconstruct. And, and also what it was too was, it's not so much like, hey, I don't believe anymore. I'm going to actually go and get drunk and party and who cares, which is what you used to see 20 years ago. Now it's, I am more virtuous in removing this. So now the public, it's like the Victorian, you know, Spurgeon and all that would be looked down on by the the high Anglican virtuous aristocrats of Britain. There was a public virtuousness that was offended by evangelicalism. And we're back at that point, but now the public virtuousness. So, they're not deconverting from faith as much. They're just reconverting to a new faith, which is this new... Yeah, it makes me nostalgic for a good old-fashioned backsliding and rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, which you can sort of understand, you know, like, you know. Yeah, it's it's true. How are we to pray for people who, you know, like... The little grannies, you know, who, how are they going to pray for people who won't even consider themselves backslidden? <laughs> yeah, totally. And and consider the church, in a sense, the immoral. And that's the flip. It's 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 now uh, the Christ- Christianity, you know, in in the concept of elite virtues, in particularly in America, Christianity is seen as the immoral thing now. Yeah, no, the, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. The script has certainly flipped. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you, uh, Mark. I, you know, one thing I really appreciated about reappearing church um, is it's not just a theory book, although it's got a lot of that and examining trends, um, but it's very practical too. You have all these exercises in there and questions for people to kind of work through. I got the feeling you were envisioning groups of people uh, doing this, which obviously is important given given the topic, uh, talking about renewal and revival. Um, one thing, one phrase that you repeat over and over is contending prayer. Uh, for for those of us who are maybe not familiar with that that expression, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I, I just started to see it a lot. Um, you know, it's a word, word that Paul uses, but just in the revival literature, just continued to see that word, and and I realized that it was a word which had dropped out of use, mm-hmm. and it's different to, you know, I'm going to run around like a headless chicken and work an eighty hour week to make church happen it's this like i can't do this in my own strength i fall on my knees god you do this i can't do this we cry out for you um you know my heart it's a heart gut felt cry for god to move and at every revival there was someone sometimes just one person praying that prayer and and for me i began to realize this i think people like the holy spirit just illuminated to me more that it's actually the opposite of consumerism yeah what defines our age is consumerism and what sadly is defined so much of the Western church is consumerism. What can this church do for me? And contending is I'm not asking anything for me. I'm actually contending for my my kids or my neighbors or my church, just my nation. God, move. And that posture of prayer, I think, got lost for a while. Um, we had the laundry list, um, but you're seeing it. You're seeing it in Europe. You're seeing it in the UK. You're seeing movements around the world beginning of just people getting together with no other agenda than to cry out for God to move. Mm. And that contending only happens when you realize that you can't do it. We can't do it. We're not good enough to do it. Um, yeah, so that that's a big part of the book. And, and part of my my desire to get people into groups, you know, my my 
secret plan. It's not so secret. <laughs> is every, every, I just thought I just had this vision. Like I, I, to be honest, I'd written a bunch of books in a row. Like it's it's you guys know it's books are hard work, and I was like, I'm gonna have a two year break, and I just felt like God said, No, you need to write this book. And the vision behind the book was like, What if across the Western world? just groups of ordinary people got together and wrestled and contended in prayer for God to move. Mm. And, and you know, that's my great vision. And and I would love to see, I'm, I'm just playing a small part in that, but I would love to see people just getting together in groups of three, four, five, ten, and just like, God, please move again. Okay, this next segment, we, we kind of like to zoom out after having a discussion of the topic of the episode, we kind of want to zoom out and and put it in the context of the bigger picture, which is hard to do with a topic like this because we've been talking about multiple countries <laughs> and moves of God. Um, but I think you know when it comes to revival, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that in our time, even though we've seen a pretty precipitous decline over the last century, certainly in Europe, places like Australia, and now even the United States, at the same time we've seen this fluorescence of Christian faith in uh, the global South. Uh, in Africa, you know, you rewind 100 years uh, and uh, maybe 10% of Africans were Christian. That number is now at about 50%. Uh, in, in China, we're seeing remarkable numbers. Some people projecting that by the mid part of the century, China could be a majority Christian nation. And then, of course, in South America, entire cities have been swept by revival. So I guess my question for both of you is, what can we learn from this amazing uh, move of God that we see around the world that makes the book of Acts look tame? There is, at the moment, there is a battle for the soul of China. Mm. And China will define the next 100 years. Mm. Um, China's GDP will double that of the United States in the next 10 years. Uh, My country is already deeply connected to China and you just have to walk around my neighborhood to see the cultural power of China. And there is an absolute battle. We're seeing we're seeing it on the streets of Hong Kong. Uh, you're seeing it everywhere. You're seeing it in Vancouver. You're seeing it across the world. In Africa, a million Chinese people have, have, have moved to um, Africa, South America. And and just 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 to encourage Christians, particularly maybe even in the United States who, who are not aware of what is happening, um, we absolutely need to contend on our knees for the church in China, for people of God to know how to face the new manifestation of Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party, which is pushing back on religion in in new and unprecedented ways, linking that with technology, facial recognition, all of these things. And I really believe that this is the time to absolutely contend for a move of God. We we actually like need to see a China free. Yeah. Wow, thank you for that and, and China, <laughs> that yeah. information. Yeah, I wasn't so, aware of all that. I've been following a little bit about it in the news, and and yeah, we can't think of you know the faith's victory in that country as a foregone conclusion. I think some people are yes. looking at the tremendous growth in recent years and projecting that out into the future. But you're absolutely right; there are new crackdowns. It's a very scary, yes. pivotal time for China. Mm-hmm. Yes, and 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 I also just so, so I'm slightly taking the question in a slight different That's direction, fine. and and look. Um, I just think also too. I mean, it's 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 in my neighbourhood now. The divisions over the Hong Kong protests, and there have been some things in the Hong Kong protests which I know some people look at and maybe some of the violence or pushback from the protests. But the majority of the protests 
Um, so, like, if people are not aware of how this has been driven by Christians and mm. millennial mm. Christians, mm. Uh, these these are the kids who these are not like your typical rebels on the street. These are kids who are, are hardworking university students, kids working in retail who've come out and in, in incredible peaceful ways, in the majority peaceful ways. So, a lot of people in the world, um, particularly in the West, we get frustrated with millennials, but there's just this inspirational thing happening. Happening at the moment in Hong Kong um, of a generation who is fighting for faith, Protestants and Catholics coming together, singing uh, worship hymns, mm. literally mm. as rubber bullets are fired at them. It's it's almost one of those moments when you look back at perhaps the civil rights movement in Birmingham and these different things happened. Like we're actually seeing this happen now. So praying for particularly Hong Kong as this 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 moment at this time. So to segue from that into yeah, there's this incredible thing happening across the world. Indonesia um, you know, Yongi Cho said that Indonesia has become the prayer room of the world. Wow. Um, Indonesia, a Muslim-majority country, um, the church in Indonesia is doing incredible things. Um, in, in South America, uh, my brother-in-law is Colombian, and, and just hearing the stories of young people um, at his church praying, um, particularly after the cartel wars uh, of the 90s, all across the world, we're seeing incredible things happening in the two-thirds world. My church um, just did the Alpha course, so I think it, my wife runs Alpha at our church, and um, you know we have multiple Iranian people coming, Kurds, um, Persians. Um, there are more... Persians have come to faith in the last 10 years than in the last 10 centuries. Uh, incredible things happening um, across the world that we need to be aware of. And, and God is doing something for people who are put in that humble place. And globalization and immigration is moving the world around, and God is using that to actually undo elements of secularism. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, to follow up on this theme of humility, um, seeing these uh, revivals and the movement of God outside of the Western mm. context, and especially as an American evangelical, is in itself a humbling process, right? right? So I think especially for American evangelicals, we are so accustomed to being the center of the world, <laughs> both <laughs> politically and even in terms of the missions movement or the size and scope of our institutions or our religious institutions, you know, and so it's very easy for us to ha have this consciousness that we are the center of God's church. And um, I think watching this very quickly test our citizenship. Oh. It very quickly separates how much of my uh, identity is American and how much of it is Christian. And so the I think there's this beautiful opportunity for the very humbling that we need to see revival in our own spaces, but it comes by... Um, decentering ourselves and, and getting caught up in what God is doing in his church globally and recognizing um, the small part we play in this much larger thing that God's doing. So I think even this is a way of bringing us to our needs to then cry out for the very things that our communities need. Amen. That's well said. And it's so true. I think whatever happens in this country, uh, for the foreseeable future, we will be looking to the majority world, the global south, uh, and what God is doing there as uh, 
as the leaders of, of the Christian faith. And I think that's actually exciting, but like you said, can be humbling as well. Well, um, yeah, we're getting on in time here. A couple more things I wanted to touch on briefly, and this next one's just sort of a silly little segment that we do. Um, usually we take a look at maybe a news story or something that's kind of quirky. Uh, this time, I just wanted to uh, mention something I saw online and had sort of a negative reaction to. And it was simply this. I, was, I think I was on Twitter, and I saw someone describing themselves as an internet pastor. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just me. I, I'll be, I'll be, you know, I, I don't want to bias you by going on my rant about this. So I'll just leave it there. What do you think of that? Can someone be an internet pastor? I didn't even know the internet even attended church. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Maybe I'll start with my my little beef with this. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I kind of you know made some fun of it and had a little fun with this, but. You know, I, I I get it. You know, you can dispense uh, devotional thoughts. Uh, you can encourage people, I think, certainly online. Um, but there was something about that that really rubbed me the wrong way. And as I thought about it a little more, I thought, well, I think there's something about being a pastor, a shepherd, that demands that you're there, that you're proximate, that you are, <laughs> you know, have that personal connection, that face-to-face um uh, presence in people's lives. And, um, you can do a lot of good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I've been impacted by what I've read, uh, by my online interactions, but I felt, man, that's just a little too far. Let's keep, let's keep, uh, the pastorate, uh, in-person sort of thing. It's, I think it's important. I mean, I think that there is, I did read the other day of the, I think it was the first virtual reality baptism. And it was, yeah. (laughs) And, and there was the line here. So they talk about, you know, this person got baptized. And I think there was some kind of internet pastor in this particular, I don't know where, you know, it's like a second life type space. And the line that got me was that it, it said then the baptism was witnessed by this anime character who was like a rabbit or something. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, because part of me is like, I'm trying to be, you know, I studied like missiology at seminary. So part of me is like, okay, you know, going into those spaces. Contextualization. But the line, there you yeah. go. Yes, contextualization. But I think the line, yeah, the, the baptism was witnessed by an anime rabbit bunny. I just like, okay. No, you're, you're like, and I'm I think out. that, <laughs> yes, there's an element where I think that, you know, the internet does incredible things. For me as an Australian, I could not have had the the connection and influence um, that you know I'm able to have without the internet. Like so, I'm, I'm very aware. You know, I just was yesterday just having a pastoral chat with, or you know, like a a, a spiritual chat with you know a friend in the UK. Um, I have friends overseas I keep in contact with. So being in Australia, it's I see the advantages of it. But then I just have had like God speak to me so strongly recently, um, just how He still wants me to be in place. Uh, my body is here in Melbourne and not just in Melbourne, it's in a particular neighborhood. And I spend almost all my time in the one neighborhood and knowing the people in my street. And And there's this wonderful, it, it, it's like it's like the internet provides us with a slight highlight reel of a certain part of our life. Um, it connects to just thoughts. And, and for me, when I walk around and I inhabit places with my body and I inhabit it with my emotions and I'm forced to be in relationships which, which my editing, so online edits who you want to be around. Um, I, yeah, I, I see pastoring as 
it's very physical in that sense. You know, a shepherd is someone who walks with the sheep, protects the sheep, um, and it's not just this sort of mental exercise. Um, yeah, so I think someone can do pastoral elements of pastoral work online, but it, that can't be the whole totality of that. That makes an awful lot of sense. Although I will say that virtual baptisms might solve the whole immersion versus sprinkling debate. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Oh man. And can and can anime bunnies be members of That's churches? A That's a whole other question. question. Can they even be saved? Can they be ordained? That's the real question. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Mark, I wanted to ask you. You know, it, it was so fascinating to me. We had lunch a, a while back and uh when you were in town and um at one point I said to you um, so where did you go to seminary? Or I asked you if you'd been to seminary and I was surprised to hear that you didn't go to seminary. Uh, and in fact, you're largely, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a self-taught guy and you just have this amazing range of knowledge that just blows me away. And so, you know, when, having you on, I was just curious to hear about one book and, and you can't say the Bible cause that's cheating, but one book, um, out of the hundreds, thousands of books that you've read that has had sort of a formative influence on you? What book would you say that is and why? Mm. Yeah, I, I did a few subjects at seminary, but but didn't finish. Um, and yeah, you're right. I just, just been reading different books and impacted me. I, I think probably the book that I've just continually returned to in different seasons would be The Divine Conspiracy. Oh, Willard. Dallas Willard. And... Um, yeah, I just look back um, and I recently like found like this old notebook um, from like, I don't know, 12 years ago in the back of my cupboard and it was just interesting seeing the notes back then and yeah, that's just been a book which has yeah, deeply shaped me. I think his philosophical way of looking at the world, his, um, you know, it's interesting, Willard was a phenomenologist which is a big word but it essentially was, you know, studied it was really an academic professor in a, you know, in a secular university, but brought this concept of phenomenology, which is this idea of not so much just ideas, but how ideas are lived and how they operate in real time, how we perceive the world. And for me, there was just something about that book that it connected with how I operate. I weirdly, as much as I like ideas, I'm not just this abstract person, you know, I'm a pastor 95% of my yeah. time. And, um, you know, how to actually walk out the ways of Jesus, um, that book. And, it, and it, it's, I had to wrestle with it. Like it, take, it took me ages to grapple with that book. Um, but I think, you know, I've got this falling apart. The American cover is really nice. It's got this like old picture. In Australia, we either get like, I don't know why. I don't know what's cheap. We either get the British cover or the American cover. I've got the ugly British cover, um, but it's falling apart. But that's a testament to how much I've read it. Let me just uh, wrap up um, with a quick preview of our next episode. It's actually related, I think, to the, a lot of the, the stuff we've been talking about on this one. We're going to be talking to Dean and Sarah uh, about his book, The Unsaved Christian. Uh, so he's talking about reaching not the post-Christian uh, folks, but actually people who identify as believers, uh, but really maybe just have a form of cultural Christianity uh, rather than authentic faith. So I'm looking forward to that. And I just wanted to conclude with this thought, you know, I, you know, since I was a kid, since I grew up in the church, I've heard that verse about Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a, 
a verse that kept coming back um, to mind as we've had this conversation. And I used to think of that verse, I'd imagine the gates of hell sort of attacking the church um, <laughs> and that the church was going to survive the onslaught. But of course, gates don't move. Gates are stationary. And the image, as some people have pointed out, really is of the church on the offensive uh, coming towards the gates of hell and then overpowering them, just kind of steamrolling them. And I love that image because you know, it shows that the church really isn't at its best when we're on the defense, but when we're on the offense, on mission for Christ. Um, and when Jesus made that claim, <laughs> I think it would have seemed pretty absurd. Uh, he's looking at these, you know, 12 disciples, these uh, nobodies saying that he was going to build his church in the face of all opposition. And yet here we are 2000 years later. We have, what, two billion people the world over that claim to be following Jesus. And it just shows, of course, that Jesus has built his church and he will continue to build it. Um, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mark and Hannah, for this awesome, enlivening, enriching, inspiring conversation. Um, and until next time, keep growing and keep reading. Thank you. Thank you.